Well, the Johnson family was on their way for the start of their family vacation. There was mom and dad and their two boys, and uh, they had a long drive in front of them. They're 200 miles into their trip, and this whole time their two young boys have not been good at all, and, and finally dad has had enough, and you know he shouts at his boys, you know, ever since we left home, you guys have been shouting at each other, you've been calling each other names, you've been tearing up the back seat of the car, and I'm putting an end to this right now, so he slams on the brakes, pulls the car over, grabs both of his sons, spanks them, and he says, I don't want to hear anything from either of you for at least 30 minutes. And his youngest is trying to say something, and he says, for 30 minutes, be quiet. And so they're both quiet for at least 30 minutes. And then finally, the youngest boy says, Daddy, when you spanked us back there, my shoe came off. Have you ever had one of those days where just kind of everything goes wrong? You know, it's just one of those horrible days that uh, it's just not going right. Or, or maybe one of those days where it's just packed full of stuff. Uh, you're just super, super busy. You don't know how you're going to get all of it accomplished, all of it done. A day just full of problems or a day just overly full of things to do. Uh, I'm sure all of us have experienced those. I know I have experienced many of those days in my life. And I think it's important to remember that Jesus had those kind of days as well. Jesus had very difficult days, actually probably more difficult days uh, than most of us will ever encounter. But he also had very full days. Uh, When you look at his ministry, you see that he had days that were just packed full of so much ministry and so many things that he was doing that you sit back and think, how in the world did he get through a lot of these days? How in the world was he able to continue the kind of schedule that he lived during his ministry? Here in Luke chapter 4, we finished in verse 13 last week. We start verse 14 this week. And there's an interesting transition that takes place now because now we finally have gotten to the start of Jesus' earthly ministry. And you're going to notice as we look at Jesus' ministry, we're just going to see life with Jesus day after day and what Jesus' life looked like. And we're going to see days in this chapter that were very difficult, days that brought lots of problems. And we're going to see days where Jesus was ministering all day long, just packed full of different things to do. Now, the fact that Jesus goes through difficult days and the fact that he goes through long, full days, just like you and me, is really not the main point of what we're going to see here in chapter 4. I think the most important thing that we're going to see is how Jesus deals with these days. How does he deal with these days full of difficulty? How does he deal with these days that are just packed full of things? What does he do to prepare himself for the constant bombardment of difficulty and long days that he faces regularly? You see... Since all of us regularly go through difficult days and all of us go through long days, what we're going to see here from Jesus is really going to be very applicable for each one of us. So here in Luke chapter 4, verse 14, we come to this important shift in the ministry of Jesus because now this ministry is starting. Luke's covered Jesus' birth. He's covered a little bit about Jesus' childhood. He's covered this preparation for Jesus' ministry as he's baptized. He's led into the wilderness, tempted for 40 days by Satan. And now he comes to the start of his ministry. And the start of Jesus' ministry takes place in a place called Galilee. 
Jesus spent a lot of time in Galilee. Actually, from now, six more chapters into Luke, it's all going to be focused in Galilee. Jesus' ministry that started there in Galilee. Luke's going to share a lot of different things that transpired there in Galilee. Now, Galilee is located at the northern part of Israel, uh, where the Sea of Galilee is, as you can see from the arrow on the map. But Galilee is not a city. And it's not a town, if you've heard Galilee mentioned in the Bible. It's actually a region. Uh, It's a region that has many cities and many towns located in it. The green line here shows the region of Galilee during the time of Jesus. Uh, And the three towns that are going to be mentioned most in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus visits regularly, does things in regularly, are Nazareth, Capernaum, and Bethsaida. And that's why I've underline those so you can kind of get a perspective of where they are <laughs> where they are on the map now the jewish historian josephus said that the population of the city of galilee at the time of jesus was about three million people uh, and that's not really that big of an area so that's a, a pretty populated place and so we're going to start here in galilee start with the the ministry of jesus and uh, what we're going to see what a day in jesus life looked like so verse 14 chapter 4 says this Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went out through all the surrounding regions, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Now remember, last week we left Jesus. He was in the desert. The Holy Spirit led him there, and he had this encounter with Satan. For 40 days he was tempted by Satan, and we saw that very important passage of Scripture where Jesus overcomes each one of the temptations that Satan Brings against him. And now we're told that he leaves the desert and he goes to the region of Galilee. Now, Luke shares an important thing about how Jesus returned from his victories over temptation. We're told that he returned in the power of the Spirit. Jesus comes forth from his time of temptation really even stronger than ever because now he's been victorious over the temptations that Satan brought against him. You know, there's a commentator I really like. His name is Adam Clark, uh, and he says this about this verse. He who, through the grace of God, resists and overcomes temptation is always bettered by it. This is one of the wonders of God's grace, that those very things which are designed for our utter ruin, he makes the instruments of our greatest good. Thus Satan is ever duped by his own proceeding and caught in his own craft. I love what Adam Clark says here about this passage because I think it's so true. When we resist the temptations that Satan brings against us, those temptations that are ultimately designed for our utter ruin, God uses them as instruments of His greatest good. When we resist the temptations of Satan, God uses those circumstances ultimately to help us grow in our relationship with Him, to help us grow spiritually. And so what Satan intended to destroy us, what Satan intended to hurt us, what Satan intended to cause our our spirituality to suffer, when we resist those things, God uses them to help us grow, to become more like Him. So Jesus leaves the desert and comes to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And we're told that news of him went out through all the surrounding regions, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. I think it's important to note that the start of Jesus' ministry, one of the main focuses of his ministry was teaching. And he would go to synagogue after synagogue after synagogue, and he would go there and he would teach. 
And at this point in time in his ministry, he has no organized opposition. We're told that he was being glorified by all. So people really liked him at the start of his ministry. And if you know what takes place towards the end of Jesus' ministry, that wasn't something that lasted too long. Now, news of him, we're told, went out throughout all the surrounding region. So he starts in Galilee, which you see up there at the top. But the other things that I've underlined are other regions. Samaria, you're probably familiar with that if you've read the Gospels. Uh, Judea, Decapolis, those are other regions around there that word was spreading about this man named Jesus. Well, now Luke is going to tell us one of the main things that Jesus is doing here as he's teaching. Uh, He's going to tell us a specific synagogue that he taught in. And he's also going to tell us what he taught and how people responded to it. So verse 16 says this. So Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. So we're already told that Jesus has been teaching in synagogues all over the region of Galilee. And now he goes to a specific synagogue, the one that's in Nazareth. Now, this is an interesting place because if you know your Bible, you know that that is where Jesus grew up. For those of you who know the Christmas story, you know Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but that is not where he stayed. Right after that, his parents flee to Egypt, and when they come back, they settle in Nazareth. Uh, So Nazareth was the place that Jesus grew up, and so this would have been uh, the place in which he would have come. This synagogue would have been his kind of hometown synagogue that he would have been brought up in. Now, here's a picture. Actually, if you go to Nazareth today, they've recreated a synagogue of what it would have looked like in Jesus' day. So if you go to Israel, you can actually go into this synagogue right here. Um, And so if you look at it around the edges where what looks kind of like steps, that is a place where the people would come and then they would sit. At the back of the synagogue there, you have this table. And on the table, they would have put a scroll of one of the Old Testament books of the Bible. uh, And that would have been for the purpose of the rabbi over the synagogue to come and read. Now, the synagogue was the place the Jews went to in order to study the Bible together, in order to worship God together, to fellowship together. Uh, They would come together every Sabbath. Uh, Every Sabbath was every Saturday. So once a week, um, these Jews would come together and worship God. So really, the synagogue and what took place there is very similar to our Sunday church services. Uh, They did it on Saturday, we do it on Sunday, but there's still the the same type of focus where it's a focus of fellowship and worship and and studying the Word of God. But I think it's interesting that Luke tells us something here that's important to note. He says, and as Jesus' custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. Now notice we're told it was Jesus' custom. That means it was his habit, it was his practice to go to the synagogue every single week. So Jesus made it his custom, his practice, to get together with God's people for worship, to get together with God's people for fellowship, to get together with God's people for prayer and the Word every week. And I think this is a great example for us as believers. Because we need fellowship with other believers. We need time of not just by ourselves with the Lord, which is very important, but we also need time corporately like we're doing this morning where we come together and worship together, come together and receive from God's word together. You know, I've met a lot of Christians who don't think they need church. They don't think they need anyone else. You know, just time with me and God's just fine. That's all I need. You know, I don't need any other time besides that. Uh, and, And that's just not true. If there was anyone who didn't need church... 
It was Jesus. If anyone can say, you know what, I'm good. I don't need church. I don't need fellowship. I'm fine. You know, I'm the son of God. You know, he'd be the one to be able to say that. But notice his pattern, his custom was to be in the synagogue every single week, fellowshipping with others. I think Jesus sets this great example for us of the importance of regularly getting together with other believers. The book of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25 says this, And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. Here we're commanded not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, not to forsake this time that we're doing right now, this time of coming together as believers and worshiping the Lord together. But instead, he says, you know, there are some who who do that. Some is a manner of some who, who reject that. And we should come together exhorting one another, building one another up. You know, Satan knows that when we get together as believers, when we come to encourage each other, when we come to build each other up, when we get strengthened in our relationship with the Lord, we get encouraged in our relationship with God. When when we get taught and encouraged, it hurts Satan because we get taught and encouraged to overcome his lies, to overcome his temptations. So Satan ultimately wants to keep us from coming to church. He wants to keep us from getting encouraged. He wants to keep us from being here on a Sunday, Thursday, whenever times we get together. He doesn't want that to happen because he knows that's good for you spiritually, and he doesn't want anything good for you spiritually. And if you make it out here, you know what? He's like, okay, well, you made it, but I'm still not done. I'm going to try my best to distract you and to keep you from worshiping God, to keep you from receiving anything from God, because his ultimate desire and goal is that this would be something that you don't engage in, don't get anything out of. He loves to attack us. And I think especially on Sundays. Maybe you parents have noticed that you, know, you drive throughout the week to school, your kids are well behaved, you come to church and all of a sudden they're little monsters. You, know, you're, 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 you and your spouse have conflict on, on Sunday morning more than any other time in the week. And you're thinking, you know, why is this that you know, on Sundays there's all these things that bombard us, all these things that distract us? Maybe you sit down in front of the TV and your mind can just focus on anything. You come here and sit down and your mind's flooded with all sorts of things that are just distracting you from listening to the word or, or uh, worshiping God. Well, I don't think it's coincidental. I think the enemy is desperate to try to hinder that. You know, Jenny and I, we spend an extra amount of time on Saturday night before we go to bed praying for our marriage, praying for our family, praying for you guys, because we recognize tomorrow Satan loves to attack even more because when Sunday comes, he wants to hinder what God wants to do in our lives. Satan wants to keep us from fellowshipping together. Jesus sets the example of doing it, and we need to follow it because it's important and healthy and helpful to us. So as Jesus is there in the synagogue in Nazareth, he stood up to read, and Luke tells us exactly what it is he reads, starting in verse 17. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then He closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on Him. 
So Jesus is there in the synagogue. They've asked him to read. He stands up there and they give him what would be a scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And as he opens that up, he goes to a very specific passage in Isaiah. He wants to read something specific. He finds it. What he finds is Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. Now, the passage that Jesus reads here is a prophecy concerning the Messiah. It's a section of Scripture predicting what the Messiah would do, several things that the Messiah would come and accomplish. The prophecy reveals six things that Messiah will do to deal with the damage that sin has brought. We're told first the Messiah will preach the gospel to the poor. Now this isn't just speaking of those who are physically poor, it's really speaking about those who are spiritually poor. Our sin has made us spiritually poor and the Messiah would bring the the good news of salvation, of what He has done for our sin. Second, the Messiah will heal the brokenhearted. You know, sin breaks hearts. It destroys relationships. And the Messiah was going to come to bring healing to the brokenhearted. Third, the Messiah will proclaim liberty to the captives. You know, sin ultimately brings people into captivity, enslaves them, and the Messiah was coming to bring us freedom from our slavery to sin. Fourth, the Messiah will bring recovery of sight to the blind. And once again, I don't think this is just speaking of the physically blind, but we see that in Jesus' ministry. He definitely healed those who were physically blind, but we're also spiritually blind before we come to the Lord. And to bring that spiritual openness to our eyes that we would recognize who God is and, and that moral blindness that we have, that He would fix that. Fifth, the Messiah will set at liberty those who are oppressed. You know, sin ultimately oppresses us. It's a horrible thing, and we're told that the Messiah would come to bring a relief to that oppression, bring liberty and freedom to that oppression. And six, the Messiah will proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, the time the Lord has come to save His people from their sins. So these verses in Isaiah's prophecy predict six different things the Messiah would do. When the Messiah comes, He's going to do these six things. And when you look at Jesus' ministry, you can see that he did all six of those things. So he fulfilled every prophecy here in Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. Now, I think it's important to understand as as we see this prophecy here, that there are actually 315 Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah. 315 things about the Messiah, where he would be born, how he would live, like we see here, things that he would do in his ministry. 315 times in the Old Testament predictions, prophecies of this is what the Messiah will do when he comes. Now, we looked at six of them. Let me give you a couple more examples. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, it says, But you, Bethlehem, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, Yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth are from old, from everlasting. This is prophesying where the Messiah was going to be born. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. Well, those of us who hear the Christmas story over and over, uh, oh, sorry, we see in Matthew 2.1 that Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea. So Jesus fulfilled that prophecy. Another one is Isaiah 53, verse 5. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. This is prophesying about the Messiah having to be beaten, having to be scourged for our sins. That would be the purpose of why he would go through that. Well, we know in the New Testament, Pilate, Matthew 27, 26, released Barabbas, and then they scourged Jesus and delivered him up 
to be crucified. So once again, we see Jesus fulfilling this prophecy in Isaiah 53. Now, those are just eight prophecies. The one we looked at uh, in Isaiah 61, and then these two as well. Um, But you know what? Jesus fulfilled 315 Old Testament prophecies. Now, you might be thinking, why are you harping on that? What's the big deal? Who cares how many prophecies Jesus fulfilled in the Old Testament or not? Well, actually, it's a very big deal, and I want to tell you why, because it's a wonderful evidence that we have, not only that Jesus is who he said he was, but also a great evidence that the Bible is truly inspired by God and that we can trust it. There is a book called Science Speaks, which focuses on the scientific proof of the accuracy of prophecy in the Bible. Uh, It was written by a man named Peter Stoner. He was the chairman of mathematics and astronomy at Westmont College. And this book looks at the statistical probability of one man fulfilling just eight prophecies in the Old Testament concerning the Messiah. And these results are really quite astounding. Mr. Stoner calculated the odds of one man fulfilling just eight of these prophecies would be one in ten to the 17th power. Now, unless you're uh, someone who's really into mathematics, you probably think 1 in 10 to the 17th power. I don't have a clue what that number is. That doesn't help me any. Well, first of all, that is a 1 with 17 zeros behind it. Uh, So that is quite a large number. Maybe to give you a little more perspective, the odds of winning the Texas Million jackpot is 1 in 176 million. This is another reason why gambling, especially that, is so stupid because the odds are so much against you. One in 176 million. But that's nothing. That number is nothing in compared to one in 10 to the 17th power. And still, you see that number. We don't really have a a real good comprehension of of the, the significance of how bad those odds are. But fortunately, in his book, Mr. Stoner gives an example to try to help us get our mind around how statistically improbable it would be for one man just to fulfill eight prophecies, not 315, just eight. And he gave this example, uh, which hits home probably more to us because we live in the state that he used. He says, if you were in the state of Texas and filled it two feet deep with silver dollars, so the whole state of Texas, we know how large that is, if you fill the whole state of Texas two feet deep with silver dollars, and you took one of those silver dollars and you marked it with a red X, and you threw it wherever you wanted in the midst of Texas. Then you took one person, you blindfolded them, and you said, you can walk as far as you want in Texas, but at some point in time, you have to choose to stop, reach down, and pick up a silver dollar. The odds are that person on the first time picking up the one with the red X are 1 in 10 to the 17th power. So the odds are basically pretty much impossible. Uh, If I just filled this room two feet deep, we'd be here all day for someone trying to find something with a red X. Imagine doing it with all of Texas. Now that's just eight Old Testament prophecies. 315, the statistical odds is a miracle. It's not possible. Uh, And so when you look at that and you realize this is a wonderful, wonderful proof that not only is Jesus who he claimed to be, the Messiah, but also that the Bible is inspired by God. When God predicts things that happen, 
That's only possible if he truly knew, if he truly is the all-powerful, all-knowing God. There are already 2,000 Old Testament prophecies that have come to pass that we can look back on and say, hey, these have taken place. This is a wonderful proof as people come to you and say, well, you know, why do you trust the Bible? How can you believe it? Fulfilled prophecy is a great proof that you can bring back to them. Now, I think that's interesting when you compare this to other religious god or religious men that people worship. There are no prophecies foretelling the coming of Buddha. No prophecies foretelling the coming of Confucius or Muhammad or Joseph Smith. Not one at all. Jesus has 315. Now, we shouldn't be surprised of that because these people don't worship the true God. They weren't God. And so we shouldn't be surprised that they don't have any prophecies predicting their life and how they would come. So Jesus is there at the synagogue in Nazareth. And he reads this prophecy about the Messiah. He reads these six things that Messiah will do. And as he finishes, we're told this in verse 20, Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. So Jesus turns to this specific passage. He reads it. When he's done, he closes it, and then he sits down. Now, in our culture today, we think, okay, well, Jesus is done. All he was going to do is read it nice. Well, actually, in that culture, when someone was getting ready to teach, they would sit. They would sit and everyone else would stand and listen. And so when a rabbi was ready to teach, he would stop reading and he would sit down and everyone would know, oh, he's ready to teach. And that's why we're told that all the eyes are upon him and they're anticipating what he's going to say. What's he going to say? Well, I think really to get you know, a feel for this, I'm going to sit down for the rest of the message and have all of you guys stand and then you can really understand what it would have been like. I'm just kidding. Some people are like, no, please, no. So we see what Jesus has to, he's going to tell us now something here in verse 21. And he began to say to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him and marveled at his gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? He said to them, you will surely say this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever you have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. Then he said, Assuredly, I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens shut up in three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But none of them was Elijah sent except to Zepharath in the region of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet. And none of them was cleansed except Naaman, the Syrian. So Jesus starts by saying something pretty amazing. He just reads this passage predicting what the Messiah would do, six things about the Messiah, and notice what he tells them. He says, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now this was one of the most popular scriptures of that time because they were desperate for the Messiah to come. And all of a sudden Jesus reads this and he says, today this scripture about the Messiah coming and what he was going to do is fulfilled in your hearing. Ultimately, what Jesus is saying, today the Messiah is here in your midst, ready to do these things, and that is me. I am the Messiah. And the people marveled at what Jesus said, but then all of a sudden they start saying among themselves, well, wait a minute, isn't this Joseph? Son, you know, Mary and Joseph, isn't this his son, the the boy who grew up here in Nazareth? You know, How could he be the Messiah? This is the one that we know that grew up here. And before they can say anything else, Jesus starts speaking again. He says, you will surely say this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever you have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your 
country. Jesus is saying, you know, you're not going to believe me unless I do some miraculous sign to demonstrate something to you. But then he goes on to say something even more important. He says, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent, except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon, to the woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. So Jesus tells him, you know what? No prophet is accepted in his own country. Speaking of the fact that, you know what? You're not going to accept me because I'm from Nazareth. You're not going to accept me because I grew up here. You won't accept who I am. And then he goes on to remind them of two of the most prominent Old Testament prophets, Elijah and Elisha. And if you read through Elijah and Elisha, you see two encounters that's very interesting because most all of their ministry is to Jews. But yet, there's two encounters where Gentiles receive blessings from God through these prophets. The first is a widow. She's a Gentile widow. There's a famine in the land. All sorts of widows are starving to death and dying. And yet, there's this one Gentile widow that Elijah goes to, and he tells her to get all these pots and fill them up. And and she's thinking, you know what? I just have one meal left for me and my boy. We're going to eat it, and we're going to die. And he just says, you know, believe that God can do this, and she does. And because of her belief that God would take care of her and do something miraculous, she survives the famine, her son survives the famine, and she's a Gentile that believed in God and he would do this. Elijah's time, we see there were many lepers, but yet there was a specific leper, a Gentile leper named Naaman, and he comes to Elijah, or Elisha, and he wants to be healed. And ultimately, Elisha tells him, go dip seven times in the Jordan. You will be. If you trust God, you believe in him, that will take place. But there's plenty of other lepers who didn't believe, plenty of other Jewish lepers who didn't have this. And so Jesus is bringing this up for a specific reason. You guys are like the Jewish widows and the Jewish lepers who wouldn't believe and therefore didn't receive the miraculous blessing from God. But he's bringing up, which they wouldn't like, there were Gentiles who were willing to believe and Jews who weren't. But you're going to be those who won't believe who I am, who won't accept who I am, and therefore won't get the blessing of believing in the Messiah and knowing the Messiah. Now, this is not something that these people wanted to hear, especially when they're being told that Gentiles uh, are ultimately receiving things that they're not. So notice how they respond. Verse 28, so all of those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which the city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. Then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. So he tells these people something they desperately do not want to hear. Hey, the Messiah is in your midst. I am him. And oh, you're just Joseph's son. You're not the Messiah. Yeah, well, I knew you guys wouldn't believe it because a prophet isn't accepted in his own town. And he goes through these Old Testament things to reveal that. They don't want to hear that message. And this is quite a response that they have. They're filled with wrath. They take Jesus. The city's built on a cliff. They take him to the edge of the cliff. And what they want to do is throw him off the cliff and kill him. Now, that's quite a response to a sermon. I wouldn't want to be the guest speaker at that synagogue. When they don't like what you have to say, they just kill you. Well, these people were greatly bothered by what Jesus says, and you know they get so angry, they take him to the cliff, and then they're about to kill him. And we're told that Jesus just then passes through the midst of them and went his way. 
Obviously, Jesus does something miraculous here. Here these people are trying to throw him off a cliff. They want to kill him. And we're just told he passes through the midst. And I wish we were given more detail of, of what this looked like. Because I've always wondered, you know, kind of how did that happen? I mean, are these people grabbing Jesus and about to throw him? And did they just kind of freeze? Uh, or did Jesus kind of just part them like he parted the Red Sea and just kind of, and they all of them just fall to the side? Or, you know, who knows? But we just know that he stops them. He walks through the midst of them. And he leaves. And they're not able to fulfill what they wanted to, which was, you know, throwing him off the cliff. And so Jesus departs. And this is just such a sad thing that here in his hometown, you know, these people, he reveals to them first, I'm the Messiah. And they don't want to hear it. They don't want to accept it. They don't want to believe it. And they try to kill him. Now, something I think is great to note is that Jesus was rejected by those he grew up with, rejected by his neighbors, rejected by his friends and family. And the reason I point this out is because when we accept Christ, oftentimes the people who reject us the most, the people that have the hardest time with us accepting Christ, are friends and family and neighbors and people that we grew up with, people that were close to us. And it's hard because people that were close to us, people that we love so much, when they don't accept and they give a a lot of problems to us because we've accepted Christ, that can be very hurtful and very difficult to deal with. And I want you to remember, Jesus knows what you're going through. He knows how you feel because he had to experience that. His family, his friends, his neighbors, they rejected him as he came on the scene and revealed who he was. But you know what? He also can give you the comfort and the peace and the strength you need to deal with those people in your life because he knows how to deal with it. He knows how to help. So Jesus had a pretty difficult day. He teaches a sermon about how he's the Messiah, reveals it to everybody. I'm sure the response that he would love to have gotten was, praise the Lord, wonderful, this is so great. Instead, we're going to kill you and throw you off a cliff. Well, let's see now. Jesus is going to have a very full day of ministry, starting in verse 31. Then he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and was teaching to them on the Sabbaths. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his words was with authority. Now in the synagogue there was a man who had a spirit of, unclean, of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying, Let us alone! What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet, and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him in their midst, it came out of him and did not hurt him. And they were all amazed and spoke among themselves, saying, What a word this is! For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the report of him went out into every place in the surrounding regions." And so now Jesus, he was in Nazareth there towards the south, and he comes up to Capernaum, which is right on the coast there of the Sea of Galilee. And once again, we see him as his pattern was. He comes into another um, synagogue, and it's the Sabbath, and he's teaching people. But these people have a different response. They love the teaching. They're engaged with the teaching. They say, man, you teach with authority, and this is powerful. And so people are getting something. Now, remember, I already said, Satan doesn't want you to come to church. And when you do come, he wants to distract you. And so as Jesus is teaching and everyone's listening and they're engaged and they're just like, oh, wow. All of a sudden, this demon-possessed man shouts out, let us alone. You know, and imagine, you know, how distracting if some one of you were to stand up and shout something. And, you know, obviously a demon-possessed person, you know, how distracting that would be in the middle of Jesus' teaching. And Satan loves to do things like that to try to hinder people from receiving what the Lord wants to do. 
You know, when I pastored in Scotland, I had a couple encounters like this, uh, and it was very frustrating, but I was teaching one Sunday, and I do believe that this woman was demon-possessed. She's sitting there, and right in the middle of my teaching, she stands up, she starts spouting all this vile stuff, she's shouting, screaming, and then she storms out of the church, and, you know, it happened twice where someone did something like that, and both times that it happened, there was a good crowd of people that came for their very first time. And none of those people ever came back after that. So, you know, it's like Satan's, you know, tactics. But then they must have thought, man, there's some super weirdos here. But, uh, you know, it was just sad. Uh, and, you know, obviously it's very distracting, very hard to go back teaching after something like that. And you're like, okay, what do we do, what do we do now? Um, so Jesus is teaching. He's interrupted by this demon-possessed man. And it's interesting to note that the demon knows who Jesus is. He says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus just told the people in Nazareth who he was. They wouldn't believe it. The demons believe it. The demons know it. They're confident in who he is. And I think this reveals to us that just knowing about Jesus isn't enough. Even the demons know about Jesus. Even the demons know who he is. We need to know more than just about Jesus. And, and people, you know, a lot of people have a lot of information. You know, I, I know what the Bible says. I know he was born. I know he lived. I know he died for my sins. Just knowing facts about Jesus isn't good enough. You know, no more than the demons do. We have to have that personal relationship with him. We have to accept him into our life. So after the demon-possessed man speaks, Jesus responds by rebuking him and saying, Be quiet. Get out of him. And the demon responds to Jesus and is obedient and comes out of the man. And as the people see this authority and power, they're even more amazed. First, they're amazed at the authority in his teaching, and now they're amazed at the authority that when he speaks to demons, they have to obey him. This report goes out into every place in the surrounding regions. You know, I think it's important to note that Jesus has the power over the spiritual realm. He has the power over Satan and demons. And we also, we constantly think like, oh, there's this real battle going on between God and Satan and who's going to win. There's no real battle. Jesus just wipes the floor with Satan. I mean, it's not like he can't handle him at any point in time. He can't handle demons at any point in time. It's like, you know, we think that they're, they're equally, you know, we have all these movies where the, you know, the villain and the, the star are kind of equal and they fight each other. There's no equality here. You know, Jesus whoops on Satan all the time and the demons. And if we just trust in his power... We can be confident that, you know what, we can overcome whatever Satan brings our way, whatever attacks. Now, if we try in our own strength, we're in trouble. But if we try in the power of the Lord, we know he has the power and has proven that he has the power to overcome them. You know, there's a great old hymn that says, In the name of Jesus, we have the victory. In the name of Jesus, demons will have to flee. When we come in the name of Jesus, tell me who can stand against us. In the name of Jesus, Jesus, we have the victory. Great words, very true, very biblical. We see it here, Jesus having power over Satan. Notice what happens. Then he arose from the synagogue and entered Simon's house. That's Peter. And Simon's mother, uh, wife's mother was sick with a high fever, and they made request of Jesus concerning her. So he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she arose and served them. So after Jesus teaches and he's interrupted by this demon and he finishes, you know, casting out this demon, he leaves the synagogue and he right there, uh, actually, if you go to Capernaum, you'll find that Peter's house is literally like a stone's throw from where the synagogue was. And so comes over to Peter's house and Peter's mother-in-law is there at his house and she's sick. And notice what we see Peter and his wife do. They come to Jesus and they ask Jesus to heal the mother-in-law. 
And Jesus does. He goes and he heals her. And, and once again, we see not only does Jesus have power over Satan, power over demons, he has power over sickness. He has the ability to bring healing to us who have illnesses, to us who have physical problems. But I think a great example here is we need to come to him. Come to him and ask. Come and recognize you do have the power, and we're going to come and ask you to use that power on us and heal us and take care of our needs. Now notice how Peter's mother-in-law responds after Jesus heals her. We're told that immediately she arose and served them. I think this is great. Not only does she serve Jesus, but she serves everyone in the house right after she's saved, or not saved, uh, healed. You know, and I think this is interesting because Jesus does great things for us, and, and oftentimes our response is worship, our response is praise, and those are great responses, but another great response is just to serve. I want to serve you, God. I want to serve your people after what you've done for me, and especially when you've been physically ill and hurting and not being able to do much physically and the Lord touches you and heals you and now you have this physical capacity to do more than you ever were doing before, hey, use that new ability that the Lord's healed you with and go serve him with it as we see here with Peter's mother-in-law. Verse 40, when the sun was setting, all those who had any that were sick with various diseases brought them to Jesus and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them and demons also came out of many, crying out and saying, You are the Christ, the Son of God. And he rebuked them and did not allow them to speak, for they knew that he was the Christ. So now it's evening. Now I want you to know that all this is the same day. He comes to the synagogue in the morning. He's preaching. The demon-possessed man's there. He casts him out. He leaves there. He goes to Peter's house. His mother-in-law's sick. He heals her. And now it comes to the evening time, and everybody hears about Peter's mother-in-law getting healed, and they say, Well, if Jesus can heal her... He can heal my loved one, and we're told everyone is bringing sick people to Jesus because they're desperate for Jesus to touch these people, to heal these people. And so through that night, he's healing every single person they brought to him, we're told. He heals them. And there were demon-possessed people that they brought, and he cast those demons out of those people. And I think, once again, this is a great example for us. We already noted we should personally come to Jesus when we need healing. We should personally come to Jesus when we need uh, protection from the attacks of the enemy. But not only that, we should bring others as well. You see, so often it's like, well, I'll pray for myself and I'll ask Jesus to help me, but we're not willing to bring others before the Lord, others who need healing, others who need protection. And so that's a wonderful thing that we can do is bring those maybe who aren't willing to come to the Lord themselves uh, or you know, maybe who don't even know the Lord and just asking him to move on their behalf. Verse 42. Now when it was day, he departed and went into a deserted place. And the crowd sought him and came to him and tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, because for this purpose I have been sent. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Galilee. So now this is a pretty long and full day that we see here with Jesus. And it's something interesting is how did Jesus keep ministering like this when he had difficult days and when he had full days and when he was overwhelmed with all sorts of different things? How was he always able to have something spiritually to give people? Well, I think the answer is here in verse 42. We're told that he departed and went into a deserted place. Jesus is constantly ministering, but if you look through the Gospels, he regularly takes time to get away from it all to get away from all the people, from the disciples, from the crowds, by himself to a deserted place. But he didn't just go to a deserted place and take a nap. Mark chapter 1, verse 35, speaking of the same instance, gives us a couple more details. It says, 
In the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. Now think of this. Jesus just had this really long time of ministry, this long day of ministry. In the evening, this huge crowd comes. He's healing every single person, casting out demons. Who knows how late he's up? And you might think, man, after a day like that, you got to sleep in. After a day like that, I need some rest. After a day like that, you know, the next day, you know, I'm just going to take it easy in the morning. That's not what we see Jesus doing here. Before it's even lights, real early in the morning, he gets away by himself, not so he can get more sleep, but so he can pray. So he can spiritually prepare himself for what is next. When we have a really long and draining day, Our tendency is to want to sleep in. Our tendency is to want to physically do stuff to kind of give us the extra strength that we need. But we don't really oftentimes think about what we need spiritually. Sleeping in definitely makes you feel better physically, but it's probably not going to help you at all spiritually. You see, the reason Jesus was able to keep ministering without getting overwhelmed by all the demands and needs is he always was able to have something to give because he got alone with the Lord. He made it a priority to regularly get away to a solitary place and spend time alone with God. And this is a great example to us because if Jesus got alone with God, if he needed to get alone with God, if that was important to him, how much more so you and I? If Jesus said, you know what, I have to get alone and spend time with the Father in order to continue to minister, and He's God, how much more do you and I, these sinful people who have so many faults and problems, need desperately to get alone with the Lord in order to continue just to live life the way that we're supposed to? When those difficulties come, if we haven't spent time with the Lord, I guarantee there's so much more hard to overcome. When those full days come, if we haven't spent time with the Lord, it's so more di- much more difficult to overcome temptation and to live a life that brings pleasure to the Lord. If you're feeling overwhelmed, you're feeling stressed out, your life's demands are, are so difficult, you know, what you need is not a vacation. What you need is not more sleep. I'm not saying that those aren't things that we you know, can do, but ultimately what we need is regular time alone with God. Isaiah 40, 31 says, But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. The strength we need comes from waiting on the Lord. Now, in our society, that's not popular. We don't like waiting. We want everything now. But when we just sit before the Lord and wait on Him and get away and get to a quiet place, that's just so important. Jesus knew this. He did it regularly, and it's something that we should follow that example. Now, notice what happens after Jesus is gone. He's in a deserted place. The crowd, they still want him. They went to bed. They finally wake up. Jesus isn't here. Uh Uh-oh, look what happens. The crowd wakes up. They find that Jesus is in this solitary place, and they want to keep him from leaving. No, no, Jesus, you can't go anywhere. We need you here. We want you to continue to fulfill our needs. And he says to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also. For this purpose, I have been sent. Now, this is interesting because Jesus is very popular. Nazareth, they didn't want anything to do with him. They try to throw him off a cliff. Now he comes here. They love his message. They bring all these people to be healed. They want to keep him. They're happy for him to be there. There's plenty of ministry And so if he was driven by the need, or if he was driven by what people wanted, then Jesus would have definitely said, hey, I'm just going to stay here. Great. But notice he says, no, I need to move on to other cities. Why? Because this is the reason I've been sent. 
This is what God has for me. He didn't have me just to come to this city and share. He has me to come to all these different cities and share. And I think it's important to note here that Jesus wasn't driven by the need. He wasn't driven by popularity. He wasn't driven by what people thought. He ultimately was driven by obedience to God. And whenever we do ministry, that's so important because some of the biggest hindrances to ministry are what people want from us. And, oh, well, you should do this and this and this, and and we get driven by that. Or there's needs here and there, and we get driven by that. And ultimately, what we should be driven by is, what is God calling us to do? What is God leading us in? We want to be obedient to Him first and foremost. And that might coincide with other things that God's saying, meet those needs or do these things. But ultimately, sometimes I see, I know in my own life, and I see especially a lot of people in full-time ministry, you can get driven by things that really aren't what God's leading us to. And Jesus is a great example here of saying, you know what, I'm going to leave this thriving ministry to the next town to preach there because that's why I've come and I'm going to be obedient to the Father. So here at the start of Jesus' ministry in Galilee, we have four important things we can learn from. First, Jesus made fellowship with other believers a priority, something that we should do as well. Second, Jesus has power over demons and sickness, and this would be something that encourages us. Take advantage of that. You serve a God who can help you overcome the spiritual temptation, the spiritual attacks that you face, and a God who can heal and bring wholeness to you when you're sick and hurting. Third, Jesus made time alone with God a priority, especially after a long day of ministry. And this is something that we need to do as well. Just make sure regularly we're getting alone with the Lord, spending time with Him in prayer and in His Word. And fourth, Jesus was only led by what God wanted, not by popularity and not by need. And that's what we ultimately want to be led by as well. What does God want? His will, not my will. That should be our heart's desire. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful just to see the wonderful example of your son here on earth as he ministered to people and we can see how he lived. We can see the example that he set. Lord, our hopefully our desire is to be more like Jesus. And so as we see Jesus' life, as we're going to continue looking at his life through this whole gospel of Luke, I pray that each time as we are challenged with an example that we see in the life of Jesus, that you would challenge us to put that into practice, that you would help us to change, that you would help us to grow to become more like Jesus. That as he made that example and he set that priority of getting together with other believers regularly, that that we would continue with that as well. That he set that example of the power that he has over demons, over sickness, that we would come to him when we're facing spiritual attack or we're facing illness. That as he set that example of making priority, time with God a priority, that that would be something that we would do as well and that we wouldn't be led by anything but obedience to you, Father. And so we're just grateful for Jesus. We're grateful for all he did for us. And we so often focus on the cross and focus on what he's done. But yet we also just want to see the life that he lived and the example that he placed before us, the kind of life that he desires us to live. And so we just pray, Father, that as We've looked at this portion of Scripture this morning that uh, we would really have, as Jesus says, ears to hear what the Spirit says, that we would take on board what you want us to hold on to, that we would apply it to our lives, uh, and that you would change us, that you would make us more like you, because that is what we need, and hopefully it's what we desire as well. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.